in the 66 books we call the Bible, the canon of God. Third John, if you would, we will begin there in verse number 9. John, under the inspiration of God, wrote these words. He said, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words, and not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would have caused them uh, out of the church, or casted them out of the church. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Demetrius hath good report of all, uh, of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. And I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. Let's pray together this morning. Father, again, we rejoice together as the children of God, as you have called us out and called us to come and gather together on the Lord's Day to read and to hear the words of God, to gather together, to fellowship one with another, to gather around the Lord's table this morning as we proclaim the Lord's death till he come. And now, Father, it is indeed our prayer and our heart's desire, as it was Paul, that if there's any lost sheep here this morning, that maybe today will be the day that you call them out and you save them. And Father, for those whom you have already saved, the sheep of God, we pray that the word this morning will have its desired effect, and we know that it will. The Spirit of God will apply it to each heart as he has desired and as we have need, and we Again, thank you for that. We rest in that. And Father, we, we also pray now as the preacher comes that you will indeed empower him to speak the word of God with boldness and freely. And Lord, we pray all of these things in the name the Bible says that is above every name, the name at which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess to the glory of God. The name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. This morning, the title of our message is A Tyrant in the Church. We are going to finish our study of the Epistle of 3 John. It is obviously a shorter letter. It is only 14 verses. And the last time we were here in this book, we went through verses 1 through 8. In that message, as we examined those verses, we saw that John the Apostle was writing to his dear friend, by the name of Gaius, who was his brother in the faith. And in that passage, John expressed so much joy that he had over the faithfulness of Gaius in his Christian walk. He also counseled Gaius in that passage to continue to support the godly traveling preachers who were faithfully carrying the message of the gospel to those who needed to hear it. That is what we saw last time. And as you remember, those itinerant preachers who were traveling from place to place relied upon the support of the church so that they could continue to do their work. Now in our passage this morning, we come to a text where we see an example that is the exact opposite of what we saw with Gaius. And we see, rather than a positive report, Like with Gaius, we see here a negative report about one of the leaders of the church, a man by the name of Diotrephes. Let's begin by looking in verse number 9. John says, I wrote unto the church, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among them, receiveth us not. Now, you can see here plainly in this verse that John says he had written a letter to the church that Gaius was a member of. 
Just so you understand, this is 3 John. This letter that John is talking about isn't either 1st or 2nd John that we have here in the canon of Scripture. We know it wasn't 1st John because in the book of 1st John, he never mentions hospitality for traveling ministers. Also, the epistle of 2nd John seems to have been written to a particular individual, not to a local church like this one was. So this letter we don't have. But this letter that John mentions was not received well at the church that Gaius was a member of because of one of the leaders, namely Diotrephes. Who was this man that caused this trouble? Well, his name means nourished by Zeus, which tells us he was a Gentile, because he had a Gentile name. Actually, there was a famous king of Athens years ago who was also named Diotrephes. But he probably came from the upper class of society. When you do a study of names, you'll find that typically those who were in the lower class were not named Diotrephes. It was a rare name, typically just for those who were in that upper class. But what is of great concern for us about Diotrephes was his personal character. Obviously, all church leaders do have a certain amount of authority in churches that is given to them by Christ, which they are to exercise according to the directions of the written word. But Diotrephes went way too far, and he began with selfish ambition to lord it over the people of God and to become tyrannical in his leadership. Peter warned the elders of this very thing in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 3 because God understands our natures. He said there concerning elders something that they were not to do. He said, neither as being lords over God's heritage. Now you're to shepherd the people, you're to exercise authority, but there's a certain level that this authority is not to reach to the point where it becomes tyrannical. Being an elder or a pastor in a local church, we understand from Scripture, is a work of service. As one seeks to govern and guide the church and to be a faithful under-shepherd among God's people. We also know from Scripture, and this is the practice in our church, it is never to be a one-man show. Never do we see in the New Testament just one leader over a church who is controlling everything. Nor is it to be a place where men fulfill lustful desires for power and control over others. But this problem, Diotrephes had. He wouldn't even receive the letter that the Apostle John wrote to this church. Now let's look at verse number 10. John says, Wherefore, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, pratting against us with malicious words. We'll just stop there. Notice, first of all, because of the trouble this man was causing, John, with the authority that he had as an apostle, was going to have to deal with Diotrephes when he would come personally to visit this church. Not because of doctrinal heresy, which is a common problem that we see throughout the New Testament, not because of teaching that was false, but because of his haughty, rebellious attitude in usurping, or at least trying to usurp, the rule of Christ over his church. And you think about it, brethren, literally, that's exactly what Diotrephes was doing. Because by rejecting John's authority... He was actually rejecting the authority of Christ that is mediated through his apostle. In rejecting Christ's representative, he was seeking to usurp the role of Christ as head of the church. So you begin to see the serious problem that this was. John's actions here were not tyrannical or harsh by saying, I'm going to come there and I'm going to deal with this man. Actually, that is the directions that we see an apostle was to follow in the New Testament itself. Let me just give you some examples here of why this is the case. Number one, we see very clearly in the New Testament that elders or pastors of local churches 
are also subject to church discipline if they are living in unrepentant sin, like Diotrephes was living in. In the directions that Paul gives to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, he says this about elders specifically. Them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. So in fact, there can even be a greater discipline that takes place because if one is in public leadership, there is the great danger that he can lead others astray by the sin that is open for others to see. So there has to be public rebuke so that the others fear and so that they don't follow him in that same sin. So pastors are not immune from church discipline if they fall into sin like heretical errors or what Diotrephes was doing. Secondly, when we look at the New Testament, we see very clearly that Paul also had to do the very thing that John was saying he would have to do when he would come here to this church that Gaius was a member of in dealing with Diotrephes. Let me just give you a couple of passages to show you that Paul also warned that when he would come to the church at Corinth, he would have to do a similar thing to the troublemakers that were there in that local church. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. Now some are puffed up, as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them which are puffed up, but the power. Notice what Paul says, I'm coming, and I will deal with those who in pride are causing trouble there in the church. He was not being tyrannical by doing that. He was simply doing what he was supposed to do as an apostle of Christ. If you would turn over to 2 Corinthians 13. I want to read these with you because these verses are just a little longer. But same thing here that Paul warns about. 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians 13 verses 1 and 2. Listen to the warning here that he gives. This is the third time I am coming to you. In the mouth of two or three witnesses shall every word be established. So just drawing from God's law in the Old Testament comes right over. Two or three witnesses. On that basis, every word must be established. Now look at verse 2. I told you before and foretell you as if I were present the second time. And being absent, now I write to them which heretofore have sinned. And to all other that if I come again, I will not spare. Paul warns, when I come, I will deal with them. He had that authority as an apostle. And here, Diotrephes, just because he was a church leader, doesn't mean that he's immune to be rebuked by an apostle. And that he forgot about. In the same way that Paul had to deal with these problems at the church of Corinth, John would have to deal with these same issues in a similar way and exercise authority at Gaius' church. Now, look at the specific deeds that Diotrephes was guilty of in this verse. We read some of them already. First of all, John says here, he was pratting against us with malicious words. Now, that word there, pratting, signifies idle, empty, silly talk, meaningless speech. So his words against the Apostle John had no basis of truth in them whatsoever. They were completely worthless. There is a verb, or excuse me, a verb that is uh, here in the text where you see here prating against us with malicious words. When he says unjustly accusing or prating against us with these words, that phrase has a related word in the New Testament that is translated in 1 Timothy 5.13 as gossips, or if you have the King James, it is translated as tattlers. So what Diotrephes was doing with his false speech, speech in many ways was gossip, tattling, lies about John the Apostle. Because John was seen as a threat to his power that he desired and lusted after, he attacked the Apostle in this most wicked way, with his words and his speech. Now look at the second part of the verse. And not content therewith, neither doth he himself receive the brethren. And 
forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church. Three other issues here to look at. Look at what Diotrephes was doing. First of all, he failed in his responsibility as a church leader to be a hospitable man. We saw this already when we looked at the qualifications for elders before. Let me just remind you of Titus chapter 1 and verse 8. It says that a bishop must be a lover of hospitality. Diotrephes denies hospitality here to these traveling ministers that we read about earlier in the book of 3 John here. He refused to receive them and help them in their work, and that was, of course, shameful as a church leader. And we saw before how hospitality is a virtue. That is to be true of all believers, and we saw that in many verses in Scripture when we studied that. But he failed at this. Secondly, as an ecclesiastical tyrant, he abused his power by preventing others in the church from showing hospitality to these men. So it's bad enough that he refused to take care of these men, but now he's forbidding anyone in the church to help these traveling preachers also. Why did he do that? Did he see these men as a threat to his power, as having more influence than him? We don't know for sure. But he did not want anybody in the church to help these faithful preachers. And you think about it. By doing so, he was actually hindering the advancement of the gospel from a human perspective. That's what he was seeking to do. The exact opposite of what any church leader should do. You see, brethren, when pride or lust for power gets in the heart, it causes us to think in ways that are just completely off. And because of that, we will do things that are just sinful and foolish. And that's what Diotrephes was doing. You see, he couldn't see. His pride was blinding him to do what he actually should have been doing as a church leader. Number three, though, look at this here. A third crime, you could say, in the church that he was committing. He was responsible for misusing the church's authority of excommunicating unrepentant sinners by casting faithful believers out of the church who helped these men. So he wouldn't help them. He refused to have anyone else help them. And if they didn't obey him, he would Discipline them out of the church. Now, this is interesting when you consider history just for a moment here. Some of you know we're studying church history a couple times a week on Sunday mornings, and we've seen a lot of good things. We've also seen a lot of bad things. Later in our study, Lord willing, we will see how faithful Christians in history, even before the time of the Reformation, people like the Waldensians, and the Lollards, and so forth, were chased down, tortured, and murdered by the Church of Rome, simply for believing the biblical gospel and seeking to spread the biblical gospel. All of that under the authority of another ecclesiastical tyrant, the Pope of Rome, who claimed to be the head of the church, and by doing so, was seeking to usurp Christ's authority as head of his own church. But think about that. That happened in history. But all the way back here, at the end of the first century, while John the Apostle was still alive, faithful believers were disciplined out of the church for helping ministers of the gospel. You see, this corruption started very early on. You could be disciplined as a Christian just fulfilling your Christian duties out of a local church. And that's what John would have to deal with. All of this oftentimes would happen in history because of tyrants like the popes of Rome or tyrants like Diotrephes himself. Now, there is in the New Testament legitimate excommunication and illegitimate excommunication like we see here. Let's first of all talk about the legitimate practice of excommunication. You remember in Matthew chapter 18 and verse 18 when Jesus is talking about disciplining unrepentant sinners out of the church. This is what he said. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. You realize something really important there? Jesus says that he gives to his church the power to discipline unrepentant sinners 
out of the church. He gives his church that authority to do that. So there is legitimate excommunication in the New Testament. And I emphasize that because you know what's really sad? Most modern evangelicals don't believe that. They don't agree with the practice. For many modern evangelicals, they think of their Christian walk as it's just me and my Bible under a tree. Hyper-independence. No submission to any authority in Christ's institution of the church. But that's horrifically unbiblical. There is legitimate excommunication in the New Testament. But let's talk about illegitimate excommunication that we see here in our passage, what Diotrephes was involved in. Three things. Notice, first of all, the problem here, one of the problems. This church discipline was inflicted by only one man, Diotrephes himself. That's never the case. That's never to be the case in the New Testament. In the New Testament... Biblical excommunication is to be inflicted by the whole church, not just one man. Let me just give you some examples of this. In 1 Corinthians 5, verses 4 and 5, here's what Paul writes concerning a man who was unrepentant. Everybody knew about it. There's no more steps of church discipline to follow like you see in Matthew 18. It was simply time to put him out of the church. Here's what he says. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ... When ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan. So church discipline is very serious. It's to take place in the name of Christ. So if it's not done in a legitimate way, you can blaspheme. But if it's done legitimately, it's done in the name of Christ by the gathered church, the gathered assembly, the elders, and the whole congregation. Never does one man just take the authority upon himself to say, you are out. Look also, or you can just listen to me read it if you want, 2 Corinthians 2.6, concerning this same church discipline that took place concerning this man. Here's what Paul says about that. This punishment, that's the excommunication, was inflicted of many, you see. You see, there wasn't just one pastor at the Church of Corinth that could just say, okay, I'm deciding, he's out, we're done. No, nothing like that. The whole church, the gathered assembly, with the pastors and the whole congregation was involved in putting this man out of the church and then eventually receiving him back in when there was repentance. But that's the problem here in 3 John. Diotrephes just, nope, I'm casting them out. Second problem. What was he casting them out for? He was casting out faithful brethren for helping faithful brethren. Now, that's a problem. Biblically speaking, excommunication is only to occur for unrepentant heresy and for immoral immorality that is persisted in. Just some examples. Titus chapter 3 and verse 10. Paul talks about there of disciplining Heretics, specifically. 1 Timothy 1.20, Paul speaks about disciplining heretical blasphemers, Hymenaeus and Philetus for their heresy. 1 Corinthians 5.11, we see a list of sins given there that could be, if they're not repented of, subject, you're subject then to church discipline, idolatry, fornication, drunkenness, and so forth. But you know what's interesting is you never see in the New Testament excommunicating someone occurring for helping faithful ministers. So I'm just drawing a comparison here. What's biblical and then what Diotrephes was doing. Thirdly, a big problem here also was his motive. What was the motive here behind the church discipline that Diotrephes was behind? Pride and a desire for preeminence. Whereas in the New Testament, we always see that excommunication was to be done for God's glory to keep his church pure. Also, for the good of the person whom you're excommunicating them, calling them to repentance, keeping them from going astray. And then also to keep others from falling into the same sin. So you see here, brethren, the motives were way off. 
the reason for discipline was way off, and the way that the discipline took place was way off. And John, then you see why it was absolutely necessary and vital that he comes to this church, he deals with diatrophies, or this church could just be torn apart. So we see how dangerous tyranny in a local church can become. Now look at verse 11, if you would. Beloved, follow not that which is evil, but that which is good. He that doeth good is of God, but he that doeth evil hath not seen God. Now, brethren, this is one of those verses in the Bible that is just a clear and direct statement concerning those who know God and those who are lost. And what it testifies to, again, is that the actions of the person demonstrate the real spiritual condition of that same individual. Now, when he talks here about practicing evil, we could think about evil in general, because evil in general is against God's nature. God hates evil, that which is against his law. But in our passage specifically, what's the evil that is being referred to? Well, obviously, the tyranny of Diotrephes, his pride, his selfish ambition, his lack of hospitality, all of that is included here. But then when he speaks about doing good, again, in general, doing good, we could think of God's kindness, God's mercy, which we are to emulate in our lives. We think of Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Peter said Jesus Christ went about doing good in general, but specifically here in our passage, ministering to these traveling saints was a good thing. And it evidenced again that these people in the church who were ministering to these preachers were true followers of Christ. Those who do good are, he says, of God. He that does good is of God. That is, he has been born of God. He has passed out of death into life. He is now spiritually a child of God. Because of God's grace, because of the empowering of the Holy Spirit, now they desire in their lives to do that which is good. But he says, though, that those who do evil hath not seen God. What does he mean by that? Simply, they have not experienced his saving grace. They have not come to see God for who he is. They have not come to abhor themselves because of their own sin, and they've never experienced the love of God in a saving way. Think about how this is just for a moment, biblically. Before someone is born again, before someone is converted, they are in a condition of spiritual blindness and spiritual deadness. Whether you are a self-righteous religious person, or if you are a wretched immoral atheist, it doesn't matter you will not see yourself as a poor, blind, miserable, naked sinner in need of Christ if you are in a spiritually dead condition. What God at first must do is humble that individual by revealing to them his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, and their abhorrent, sinful condition before him. They must first come, by God's grace, to understand that about themselves. When humbled, the repentant sinner then flees to Christ for forgiveness and for salvation. And if he is drawn by the Father, if he has been made alive by the Spirit of God, that is exactly what he will do. These are they who John refers to as being of God and as a result of their salvation, not to earn salvation, but as a result of their salvation, now they will desire to do that which is good. When they were spiritually dead, they had no desire to do good. Does that mean they never helped anybody? Does that mean they never gave their money to somebody? No, but they never desired to do anything for the purpose of glorifying God. And they could never do anything in a way that would glorify God. Now when they are born again of the Spirit, when that miraculous work is done, now they will desire to do good with right motives. All others are yet enslaved to evil, and according to John, they know not God. Very similar to what John wrote in his first letter in chapter 3 and verse 10. He wrote, In this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil. Whoso doeth not righteousness is not of God. 
He that loveth, neither he that loveth not his brother. So make no mistake about it, brethren. Just because someone might walk an aisle, come forward, say a sinner's prayer, say they've been saved, say they've been converted, and there's no transformation in their lives, eventually they go right back out to the world, they cannot legitimately say that they are truly saved. If you are truly converted, you have received a new nature, a new heart, God has put his spirit within you, and according to Ezekiel, now he will cause you to walk in his statutes and in his ways. That is the testimony of all of Scripture, Old and New Testaments. Now let's look at verse number 12. Demetrius hath good report of all men, and of the truth itself. Yea, and we also bear record, and ye know that our record is true. Here, like with Gaius now, we come to a completely different testimony than what we saw with Diotrephes. This Demetrius had a, good repu- uh, had a good reputation as a Christian man and a faithful servant of God with John and other believers. They could testify to his faithfulness. He may have been sent by John to Gaius to deliver this letter, and his name means belonging to Demeter, who was the Greek goddess of grain and harvest. And that's important because it tells us again, this was a converted Gentile who has come to faith in Christ, saved out of paganism, and now faithfully followed the Lord. John, and it seems that all the saints who were with him at Ephesus could testify to the truth of this man's faithfulness. It's interesting how John says here in verse 12, and ye know that our record is true. There have been some doubts by skeptics about 3 John. Was 3 John really written by John? And was 2 John really written by John? And so forth. Well, John the Apostle uses the same language in his first epistle and in his gospel. Listen to John 19.35. Concerning the testimony of Christ, he says, And he, that's himself, saw it and bare record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. John's saying the same thing there in his gospel as he's saying here in this letter. You know my testimony that I am giving is true. As an apostle, he could be trusted. John, now as the old and beloved apostle, respected by the church, was a man they could trust concerning his testimony of other men. So concerning Demetrius here, he had a good report from John, a good report from other believers, and he was committed to living the truth. And you know, brethren, that should be the goal of each and every one of us. It's the only verse here about Demetrius in all the Bible. But how wonderful to have that testimony of yourself in Scripture for all eternity as an example for us. Finally, let's look at verses 13 and 14. I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen write unto thee. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, And we shall speak face to face. Peace be to thee. Our friends salute thee. Greet the friends by name. John here simply ends his letter to Gaius by letting him know that there are many other matters that he needs to communicate with him about. It might have been about other churches, might have been certain people. But he thought it was more proper for him to speak about these things face to face instead of writing them out. And then he says, peace be to thee, which was the usual salutation amongst the Jews. And of course, remember, John was a believer who was a Jew, and so he uses that language. And then the friends that are with John also greet Gaius. John greets the friends that are also with Gaius. And you see here, again, when there's that greeting, there's that you're thinking about the brethren, you desire to be with the brethren. Matthew Henry said, and those may well salute and greet one another on earth who hope to live together in heaven. When you consider that, these are brethren that I'm going to be with for all eternity. They become much more important to you. And he greeted them and was sure to let Gaius know to do that. Brethren, let's just think of a few practical points before we come to the table from this passage that we've looked at this morning. First of all, drawing from verse 13, when John says, I had many things to write, but I will not with ink and pen, write unto thee. Believe it or not, that is a very practical verse for us today. <clears throat> Think about modern-day technology that we have, brethren, which in many ways is very, very useful. I use it. 
But there's a good way to use it, and there's a bad way to use it. <clears throat> and when you think about social media, blogs, and so forth today, texting, and all the stuff that is out there, you know one of the things that it has revealed with people? It reveals the sinfulness of people's hearts in that they will say things to you by typing to you that they would never dream of saying to your face. And you know something? That's not something that we as Christians should do. There are certain things that are good to write to someone. There are other things that, you know, you should just speak to your brother face to face about those things. That is an important principle when you stop and think about that. You know, <clears throat> this is kind of a sad story, but I knew of a Christian man and another Christian man, and one of these Christian men no longer wanted to fellowship with the other because he disagreed with him about Bible translations. And what's interesting is, is he just broke off their friendship through a text. And the other man said, if you're my friend, why don't you come and talk to me about it instead of hiding behind a text message? That's very true. Don't let writing things to people in modern technology hinder the way that you handle things with other believers. That's important. There were certain things that John had, but he knew. These things I must speak to you face to face about. It's important to remember. Second practical point, I draw from verse 14. But I trust I shall shortly see thee, and we shall speak face to face. And now notice, peace be to thee, our friends salute thee, greet the friends by name. Notice what he calls here his fellow believers, friends. We are friends. There should be no such thing as Christians who would say, yeah, he's, he's a fellow believer, but, you know, he's, I, I, he's not a friend of mine. So I don't have to treat him as a friend. No, that's not the case at all. These men were friends. <clears throat> Obviously, throughout life, brethren, we go through different changes. We might move to different places. We might get busy in certain areas. So our relationships with fellow Christians and some friends we have might change as well. But let me warn this. Never should a friendship just disappear and be broken off for no reason whatsoever. And there are a lot of Christians that do that or professing Christians. They're friends with somebody for years, all of a sudden, gone, disappear, I got mad at that person, never communicating with them again. That's wrong. That's completely wrong. If you have a problem with a Christian friend, don't just break it off. Go talk to them about it face-to-face. Friendships should never be broken off. And ministers of the gospel, pastors and churches, experience this all the time. You might have people in the congregation for years and they're gone with zero communication. And you have to find them and ask, what happened? And you've come to find out they're just glad they're not there anymore. That's unbiblical. So we should have a biblical understanding of friendship in that way. Man is very, a very fickle creature. That's how Saul was in the Old Testament. Wanting to kill David, thanking David that he didn't kill him wanting to kill David again, thanking David that he didn't kill him when he had the opportunity. That's our nature. We have to overcome those things. Also, that's very practical. Third, look at verse number 10. <clears throat> Remember, Diotrephes was pratting against John with malicious words. <clears throat> it's amazing to read that. How, you could, how one could do this to the beloved old disciple John, who was meek, loving, kind, experienced, faithful. How could this man do those things to John? You know, it's amazing because it's common for Christians to experience that. Some of you in here who stand for righteousness in the public forum, who preach the gospel, have had this happen to you, slandered in public. But it's also common for preachers to be spoken against in this way, just as it was for John. Now, here's a warning, because we're talking about something that was going on in this local church that Gaius was at. Proud people often seek power by negatively destroying people's trust in faithful leaders. I just want to repeat that because it can kind of go in one ear and out the other. 
Proud people often seek power by negatively destroying people's trust in faithful leaders. That's what Diotrephes was trying to do. And this can be done in some of the most sneaky, sly, smooth ways. Be very careful. If you know someone who almost never, ever talks positively about a pastor that he's ever met, you probably know that's a red flag. And whenever he speaks about church leaders, it's always with suspicion, planting in seeds of doubt. That's not a good thing. When Diotrephes saw John as a threat to his power, what did he do? He wickedly attacked him. This, it's often done in this way. With evil intent, they will take any small matter that they can find and make it a big issue to seek to hurt the characters of those who are in leadership to try to hinder their service. Whenever you see that in a local church, doesn't matter who it is, you have to be very, very careful. Fourth and last practical point is for all of us. <clears throat> we always must beware of the sin of pride. Doesn't matter who you are as a believer. You, we always must beware of the sin of pride. It is a sin that always leads to dangerous consequences for non-Christians and for Christians alike. And there are so many examples of this throughout the Word of God. Let me just give you a few of them. Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Daniel, chapter 4. Familiar passage, but again, it's a good warning for anyone who deals with pride. Here we see some national pride. It's important for us to consider, obviously, as Americans, because whether you're a leftist or if you're a conservative, well, I think there's no leftists in here, but uh, if you're a conservative uh, person, a lot of conservatives in our country talk about how proud we should be as Americans. It's actually very unbiblical. But Daniel chapter 4, look at verse 30. This is Nebuchadnezzar. The king spake and said, is not this great Babylon that I have built for the house of the kingdom by the might of my power and for the honor of my majesty? While the word was yet in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven saying, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to thee it is spoken, the kingdom is departed from thee. And they shall drive thee from men, and thy dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make thee to eat grass as oxen, and seven times shall pass over thee, until thou know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. The same hour was the thing fulfilled upon Nebuchadnezzar, and he was driven from men, and did eat grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hairs were grown like eagles' feathers, and his nails like birds' claws. Here, national pride was completely crushed by God. Nebuchadnezzar was used as a tool to bring judgment to the nations. You'll see that as you read through the prophets. But that did not mean that he wouldn't be subject to the discipline of God for his sin of pride. Think about how dangerous national pride is, brethren. <clears throat> pride is a sin no matter what form it is. Pride is always a sin. We speak oftentimes today of American exceptionalism. And don't get me wrong, I'm thankful for what God has given us in this nation. I'm thankful for the Christian history that we have. But there is no such thing as American exceptionalism. The only reason why we've experienced the blessings we have is because it's a fruit often of following many biblical principles, and that's it. Any other people in the world, be the African, Asian, Indian, European, it doesn't matter. If they follow the same principles, the same results they can expect. There's nothing exceptional about us as a people, in and of ourselves. It's God who raises up nations and brings nations down. So there is no room whatsoever for us to be a prideful people. We're dependent upon God for everything. Let's look at another example. Look at the book of Acts chapter 12. <clears throat> this warns us against idolizing men and against pride for those who are in leadership. Here's political leadership again. Let's look at Acts 12, <clears throat> the example of Herod. Look at verses 21 through 23. <clears throat> and upon a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat upon his throne, 
and made an oration unto them. And the people gave a shout, saying, It is the voice of a God and not of a man. And immediately the angel of the Lord smote him, because he gave not God the glory, and he was eaten of worms and gave up the ghost. Prideful political leaders who don't give God glory or submit to his laws can end up being in big, big trouble. It's very, very dangerous to idolize political leaders. If a political leader does not submit to God's laws and give God the glory, he will be accountable for it, if not in this life, for surely the next. Do you remember Benito Mussolini? What's one of the famous statements, that old Italian dictator, what's one of his famous statements? If God is real, let him strike me dead now, right? Not long after that, he was dead on the street with his girlfriend, the crowds of people stepping on them, and eventually hung them up upside down from the lamppost. You see, God did strike him down, just not exactly when he wanted him to. That pride, eventually, you must answer for it. And that's what we see here with Herod as well. Look at a third example. Back to the Old Testament. I'll just give you two more, and we'll be finished. Second Chronicles 26. Second Chronicles 26. This is in Israel with King Uzziah. <clears throat> just look at verses 16 through 21. So we know here Uzziah was doing many great things. But here we have a problem. Because of his pride, he got out of his jurisdiction, which was in the political sphere, and he wanted to enter into the temple, into the sphere that was only to be led by the priests, not the political leaders. Look here at verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up, there's the pride, to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God and went into the temple of the Lord to burn incense upon the altar of incense. And Azariah the priest went in after him and with him fourscore priests of the Lord that were valiant men. And they withstood Uzziah the king and said unto him, It pertaineth not unto thee, Uzziah, to burn incense unto the Lord, but to the priests, the sons of Aaron, that are consecrated to burn incense. Go out of the sanctuary, for thou hast trespassed, neither shall it be for thine honor from the Lord God. Now look at this. This is what tyrants do. Then Uzziah was wroth. Think about that. Who are you to say, I can't come in here? Kind of reminds us of some of our political leaders. Who are you saying that the churches can't be shut down during COVID? Remember they wanted to shut down the churches? They wanted to get out of their sphere of influence and also become the church leaders? That's what tyrants do. Uzziah here wanted to enter into the temple and act like he could lead in the temple, but he couldn't. Then Uzziah was wroth and had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was wroth with the priests, the leprosy even rose up in his forehead before the priests in the house of the Lord from beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked upon him. And behold, he was leprous in his forehead. And they thrust him out from thence. Yea, himself hasted also to go out, because the Lord had smitten him. And Uzziah the king was a leper unto the day of his death, and dwelt in a several house, being a leper. For he was cut off from the house of the Lord. And Jotham his son was over the king's house, judging the people of the land. You see what happened because of pride? When you get into the, we might say, the religious sphere, as a political leader, and you try to lead it, it's a guaranteed judgment will fall upon you in some way, shape, or form. Think about Hitler, who wanted to Nazify the churches in Germany during World War II. How did that go for him? Where did he end up? Putting a bullet in his head down in his bunker. That's where pride always gets you. Political leaders have no business whatsoever in pride to come into God's house and try to control it. That is not their sphere of authority. One more. Let's look at ministerial pride. Matthew chapter 20. Matthew chapter 20. And this is with godly, faithful believers. See, because godly believers also can fall into pride. This is with James and John and their mother. Faithful believers, but they had this thing that they struggled with here. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children, 
with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She said unto him, Grant that these my two sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left in thy kingdom. You see, they wanted a place of preeminence there in the kingdom. James, John, and the mother, of course, wanted that for their sons. Look what Jesus comes to say in verse 25. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them. And they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I have no idea what ever happened to Diotrephes. Thankfully, James and John here obviously were corrected, and the Lord used them in a mighty way. But we see here, brethren, pride is always a sin. It is always dangerous, no matter what station you are in in life. You can have pride over your family. You can have pride over your children. You can have pride as a, over your church. If you're a pastor, really, it's Christ's church. But you could have pride as an owner of a company. Pride as a political leader. Pride is always, always a sin. And it always has dire consequences. We see here that Jesus tells us how we really are to be. We are to serve. We are to minister. And in that, we are following his example. Think of it. The king of all the universe whose glory was veiled while he walked the earth, came to minister. That his body would be broken, his blood would be shed, so that we could be saved, even from that sin that Diotrephes so struggled with, the sin of pride. May it be so for each one of us. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the letter of Third John. We thank you for the great lessons, no doubt many more, that you have in there for us to know. Touches so many areas of our lives. And Lord, we pray that by your power and by the Holy Spirit's power, that this word would be applied to us where it needs to be for each of us individually, for each of us in our homes, for each of us in this church. And Lord, may you be glorified